Welcome to the Beautiful and True Project podcast. This is a place where we talk about beauty and truth, the things that are most important to us, the things that ground us, and the things that uplift us. What you're about to hear is a recording that I did with my friend, Melody Coriel. She is a Millican Award-winning teacher at Short Ridge High School, an international baccalaureate school in Indianapolis, Indiana. She is an IB expert and an incredibly smart human being and has been a wonderful friend of mine for 35 years. Uh, She has a lot to say, some of it complicated, all of it wonderful, and I hope very much that you will enjoy it. This podcast was recorded on May 27th. It was in the middle of this ongoing global pandemic, but also kind of directly in between the murder of George Floyd and the start of the nationwide protests and riots. One more thing. As you listen, you're going to hear that the audio quality in this recording is not amazing. So if you're an audiophile, it may drive you a little nuts. The truth is that I'm not an expert at sound recording. I know a little bit, but not much. And also, we're in the middle of a global pandemic. And my friend Mel and I could not be in the same place. So this was recorded over an iPhone. So it's basically just a recorded cell phone conversation with all of the fuzziness and all of the slight inconsistencies. Despite that, the conversation is great, so just turn the volume up a little bit and enjoy. I'm going to turn some of these fans off, though, because that'll make your editing out the ambient noise job easier. There we go. Well, don't don't suffocate. If your if your AC is out, don't suffocate. That would well, be the beautiful, not beautiful. No, I will not suffocate. But the beautiful thing, the most beautiful thing that happened to me today, is that my boss texted me and said, "Is your AC still out?" And I said, "Yes." And he said, "I have a window unit that I don't use. Can I bring it over?" And I said, yes. And so now it's much better than it was. Well, that is beautiful. Yeah. And the window unit reminded me of some important parts of my childhood. One, I used to live in this house on Elizabeth Street in Kokomo, Indiana, which I think maybe you went to once or twice. It was, I lived there until we moved out to the land. Um, We had one window air conditioner and we hung up a blanket in between the living room where the window air conditioner was and the kitchen. And my parents would make, they would can salsa and tomatoes in the kitchen in in the hottest part of the summer. Mm -hmm. And so I had this memory of what it felt like to walk through that curtain from the really hot, tomato-scented kitchen into the living room where the air conditioner was. 
mm-hmm. and it made me, um, it was beautiful to me and it was true to me. It represented a lot of things about my family that I value. And then I thought about, you know, I used to spend, these, spend a lot of the summer in this little town called Sharps Chapel, Tennessee and East Tennessee. And um, Sharps Chapel is a really isolated area. Still to this day, it's sort of geographically cut off. My grandpa had 14 brothers and sisters and my grandma had four and most of them lived in that area. And so I would go down there with my grandparents and we would drive, you know, in the heat of the day is when we would go visit people. Like they would do their chores, grandma and grandpa in the morning and take care of things. And then we would all get into the car and go to visit whoever we were visiting that day. And the visit would include, you know, a lot of talking and a lot of offers of food. And I would always want to know where we were going. And one of the reasons was I needed to know if it was someone who had air conditioning or someone who didn't. And um, very few of them had air conditioning and some of them didn't have indoor plumbing. But I had forgotten that completely, that whole, like, I mean, I spent many a day in my life just like, are we going to someone's house who has air conditioning or are we not? Like, are we going to Minnesota's house? It doesn't have air conditioning, but they have shade trees. So we'll probably sit out under the shade trees and we'll get a breeze. Um, you know, so I, I just, I don't know. It was just completely gone. And then it evokes that <laughs> immediate memory. So I thought that was a beautiful thing too, because it, it it sort of put me into all of those houses because I could kind of go through the 14 brothers and sisters and the four brothers and sisters and just think about like where they live. And I of course know now still, did they have air conditioning or not? And <laughs> I was thinking about like my great aunt Dot's toenails that she like never trimmed. So she would sit, the women would sit inside and the men would sit out on the porch and they did not have air conditioning. And like I would stare at Dot's toenails and all of her gossip magazines. So <laughs> good stuff. Good stuff. Hold on one second. Yeah. This is this is part of the beautiful entry is what's up, mom? They didn't take your name, I guess. I don't know what you ordered. I ordered a pud prick and the pad thai. So you got there and they wouldn't give it to you? Well, she said, she goes, oh, you ordered, what did you order? I said, pad thai. I said, it was And she goes, what did you order? I said, pad thai. And I didn't pay attention to what you ordered. And she said, pepper? Yeah. It is pepper? Yeah. It's it's pepper and chicken. She would have said pud pepper or something. It's pud prick. Okay. Okay. Now you have to go back? Yes. I tried to call. Oh, no. I didn't have my phone. You didn't have your phone? No, so I couldn't call your number because I'm, I'm not, I mean, I'm sure what number I knew you were on the phone. So I called mine and I'm yelling. They have the phone. Oh, that was you? Yes. Well, I didn't, I don't pay, okay. And I don't pay attention. All right, I feel just shut the door. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm leaving all of this in, by the way. Excellent. <laughs> because this is life, right? It is. I accidentally peed and flushed and washed my hands and emptied the dishwasher while not muted on a Zoom call this week that had <laughs> 55 people I don't know on it. And if you had asked me, am I the kind of person, like, I, I really thought I had my Zoom game together. I I'm really sure you did. do. But the problem was it wasn't actually a Zoom. It was a WebEx. And mm. their mute, their mute 
icon is confusing to me. I double checked, you know, <laughs> but I did that. Were you also on video or was it just a call? Not on video. And I got a, um, like from one of these education companies that we work with, they sent me this little like teacher pack and it had a little sticker that you put over your camera with a little slidey thing uh-huh. so that you can block your camera. And I did check and make sure that was blocked and the video was off. But I also Oof. felt that I had checked to make sure that I was muted. Like, I know that I checked, but I was confused by the icon. So I'm officially my mother or something. I don't know. Technology. <laughs> oh, welcome to uh, the global pandemic, I guess. Yeah. And trying And trying Thank to you. work through it. Things you never thought you would do. I never thought I would start I a that. podcast about things that are well, beautiful and true in the middle of a global pandemic, but here we are. Here we are with a third-party calling mechanism and a mom type food interruption and <laughs> peeing in a WebEx call. <laughs> so really fast, I'm here with my mom, and I haven't, I haven't seen her since Christmas, and um, I kind of had to talk her into it a little bit. Because, you know, sheltering in place and you have to calculate the risk of, of going to see someone. And I'm from Chicago, where there are more cases than there are in Howard County. So, you know, there's a, there's a bit of a risk, but this is the time that I could come and that it made sense to come. I was trying to explain to Amelia, my daughter, the other day that this reminds me a little bit of the AIDS crisis, which is a parallel that I know a lot of people have made, right? And of course, mm-hmm. there are differences. But one thing I was trying to explain was like, you know, they used to tell us, whoever you've had sex with, you're also having sex with every person they ever had sex with, as a way to scare us into not having sex as teenagers during the AIDS crisis. I was like, it's like that now only with breathing. With breathing, so like, right? <laughs> whoever, because you know, if you if you meet up with your boyfriend, what's he doing? Who's he breathing with? When he's not breathing with you, and do you right? want to breathe in the breath of all of those other people? And then I was like, this is probably traumatizing to, to speak in these terms, but it's real. This is all very real. You know, I just started dating someone, and it's a it's a negotiation about what what level of really simple contact are you comfortable with. Um, and do you, you want to read the breath of all the people she's breathed the breath of? Right. And there are, you know, there are kids involved and there are people in my life that, you know, my, my flatmate and the people that she sees. And it's not many. This isn't like a huge, huge circle, but you have to, if you're talking about breathing, you start having to think about how to protect all the people in your circle and still live some kind of a life. So that's true, but possibly (laughs) not beautiful. Although beautiful moments can come from it. I do think that there's a beauty in having to cultivate which relationships, cultivate the relationships that you think are meaningful enough to take that risk. That's very true. And you do, you really do. 
not to say that the people I haven't seen aren't meaningful to me, uh, because they are. That sounds kind of like I'm re- that like we're ranking people, and I know that's not what either of us means. It reminds me of um, when I got married and had to decide who to invite to the wedding and like who was in the wedding party, right? Mm, and if you mm-hmm. like, so you have sort of these like zones you know, the friends that are closest to you, both emotionally and geographically, are the right. ones that sort of like make the first cut. I hate to say that. But like for me, I live alone half the time because my kids are with me half the time. And my neighbor and colleague and dear friend um, is in the house next door. And so we decided early on that we would sort of pod up and that, you know, her family and my family would be one pod. So I also um, have contact with my partner who doesn't live in the same house as me. Mm -hmm. And he has contact with his children who have contact with their mother. And my children have contact with um, their father and his girlfriend and her children who have contact with their father and his girlfriend. That's my, that's my pod. All those people I'm breathing the breath of all of those people. But I also have friends who are, like, very dear and near to me, like, geographically close and emotionally close to me, who would like to interact. But I know that if I join with one of those people, I get their entire pod. But mm-hmm. also, like, if, if I join with friend A, but friend B also wants to join, then it is like the wed- wedding party, right? Like, why did you join with friend A? and not with me, do you value this person more than you value our friendship? And I just feel sort of overwhelmed by the thought of it, you know, both like cosmically as in like any one of us could die if anyone in the group gets COVID, right. passes it around, but also emotionally, socially, you know? Yeah. I do know. Um, I have made it fairly simple for myself outside of my my dear dear friend that I live with who's basically like a sister to me at this point aside from her and her partner the only people I have chosen to see are people I know live by themselves they live by themselves they see you know almost no one except for me and we're always in masks so it's but that's that's the choice I've made, and I can explain that choice. So I'm not I'm not having to net negotiate that kind of emotional minefield. But it's so hard. It's so hard, and and the responsibility of protecting people through your choices. I've I don't think I've ever felt that so keenly. I mean, I don't have children, and these are such simple choices, right? I mean, these are the ones that we make every day, and now they're just they're just kind of they feel dire to me, not to everyone, clearly not to everyone. I'm hanging out in Kokomo, Indiana now, and it's absolutely not a dire situation to a lot of people here, or it doesn't seem to be, yeah, well, I guess here. I got an early dose of things actually being dire yeah, because there did. was an outbreak in my school. And so I could barely, very clearly see 
who came down with COVID-19 that we know of. And, you know, I could kind of see the percentages of, you know, how many are hospitalized, how many are on ventilators sort of playing out in my own friend and family group, um, which was pretty surreal. So it's interesting to me having experienced that so early, you know, in the beginning in the second week of March, that so many people are still so far removed from, like that there are people who still think it's not real is so surreal to me. This might be an interesting place to segue a little bit. You are a teacher. And one of the things you teach is theory of knowledge. Yes? Yes. And theory of knowledge, I hope I get this right, because I've never actually taken a course on it. It's basically kind of an examination of how we know what we know. Is that correct? That's if? part of it, yeah. Yeah, it's um it's a it's a course title for the International Baccalaureate um high school IB diploma program. And it's about how we know what we know, what the connections and overlaps are between uh different areas of knowledge and different ways of knowing and it teaches students to ask questions about knowledge so not about content knowledge but um these like second order questions that are about sort of the whatness of knowledge so what is so a second second order question about the whatness of knowledge i'm so gonna like, i'm gonna wrap this back around i think but it's not it's not discovered or invented oh okay that's deep so, i think uh, my brain just popped when it comes <laughs> to truth i believe there's the lower the lowercase p true and the mm -hmm. uppercase p true mm -hmm. and the lowercase p true is what i believe and the uppercase p true is a truth that has been you know tested um and has stood the tests of stood many tests like what is something that is uppercase true um good things come from collective effort the many are mightier than the one you know, like the two plus two equals five kind of thing when it comes to humans. I think it's true that love is good. I think we have many religions that point to that. People want to believe that, and we can see that in our everyday lives played out as well. And we can see it in psychology when we look at the effects on the body and um mm -hmm. you know of love and happiness and a sense of belonging like so i think all of those things are capital t true and to me you know that the biggest parts of the major religions all point and I, not just me but they point to the same truth and those are capital t true which is part of the reason why i would say religion is not anywhere near inherently false like the problems of religion are about the thousands of year old text trying to be interpreted for a time that is very different from the time it was written in. They're not about mm -hmm. God is love. Like you can, you can fight about what the word God means, but 
if you if you translate that into any other metaphor or any other not that that's a metaphor but any other religion people will generally agree that there's something good that comes from people loving each other mm-hmm. awesome that was such a great answer and you didn't know it was coming <laughs> this is why you are a wonderful amazing teacher award-winning teacher and i'm asking questions of you oh, stop it i know i just embarrassed you didn't i <laughs> um, one of my favorite things that i learned becoming a tok teacher um and you've heard me talk about this before but i can do it more co- concisely than we did in the past when we were like a little bit tipsy in a hot tub in michigan is this metaphor that the map is not the territory? I remember um, that conversation because it made me so angry. And it took me I, years to, to realize what you meant and how right you were. <laughs> well, it's not, I didn't make it up. But like, to me, that's the best metaphor for the lowercase true and the capital T true. Because the idea is that the you need... Wait, first explain the metaphor. Okay. Mm-hmm. The map is not the territory. The map represents our understanding and our representations and visualizations of knowledge. And the mm-hmm. territory represents all there is to be known. Mm-hmm. So we create maps in order to better understand things. So, for example, I could ask, I could hand you a map. Well, you're from Kokomo, but I could hand you a map if you've never been to Kokomo before mm-hmm. um, to my house where I grew up on North Webster Street in Kokomo, Indiana, and you could find it, right? Yes, I could. Now, could I hand you a map that was wrong? And you if could. I handed you a map that was wrong, that placed a house somewhere completely different, would you be able to find my house using that map? No. But if I handed you the map and the house was in the right place on the map, but like the scale was all wrong and like I grew some trees where there weren't really trees, could you find my house? Probably. Probably, right? If it, you know, okay. if, if it wasn't too awful, yeah, I could probably find your house. If I gave you no map at all and no tools, could you find my house? Having never been there before, no. Having never been there before, no, you couldn't, right? Right. So maps can be right. They can be wrong. They can be wrong in ways that matter and wrong in ways that don't matter. The idea here also rests on the thought that the territory, the capital T truth, is real, but is intricately unknowable. We cannot know the whole thing, right? Ineffable. The ineffable... Um, nature of the capital T truth. So, <laughs> so I could give you a map to my house and then I could say, can you please find the place on that property where my stepdad one year um, was doing something in the garden and lost his wedding ring and then the next year tilled it up while he was tilling for the next year, he tilled up that ring and saw it there and put it back on his finger. That happened? Oh, my goodness. That happened. 
and and we had a big garden. I don't know if you remember it, but it was very. I big. do. It was it was the biggest garden I had ever seen to date. Yeah. So I can't give you a map to that spot, right? I don't no. know what that spot was. So the capital T truth, like the the truth, maybe the lowercase T truth, I don't know, is that exact spot. But that ex- exact spot is sort of irrelevant because the story itself is really important, right? It's, um, it's almost like that that spot, that exact spot is is the lowercase true. But the story right. and the experience of that story and the experience I have hearing that story, that is capital T true. Correct. But then we add to this that another part of the unknowability is, well, the limitations of our senses, right? That, and, and of memory, right? But also mm-hmm. our inability to really even know ourselves and our own emotions. So, um, if we wanted to know how he felt when that ring came reappeared, we could guess at how he felt. He's alive. We could ask him how he felt right now. But he, whatever he tells us is inherently flawed because one memory that was, you know, 30 years ago, right? Mm-hmm. Two, we have to translate our words into, a, or I'm sorry, our emotions into words. And we have a limited number of words with which to express express our emotions. So we're limited to the number of words he has to express his emotions, and we're limited by his awareness. Like, was he thinking about how he was feeling at the time? Did he write it down? Um, if he did, maybe his memory of it will be clearer. But these things, you know, we could pick all knowledge apart in this way. And so we could say, well, it doesn't matter. This story is irrelevant. We don't know where the ring was and we don't know how he was feeling. And so we just need to like remove this from the canonical knowledge of, you know, my house and my life growing up, (laughs) except that it's a really important story that really does get at the capital T truth. Even if the lowercase T, the little trees on the map are sort of vastly unknowable at this point. That's, that's what I think about when I think about truth, is that the map is not the territory. We shouldn't become concerned, frustrated, um, throw up our hands and say, well, if we can't know it, there's no point in knowing it, or there's no point in map. Because we have to have the map. If you didn't have the map, you couldn't find my house. But I think what we're saying to a lot of people right now is your map is wrong. Stop thinking and stop drawing maps. When what we maybe we've got to say. Wait, hold on, hold on. I'm gonna pull a little Brene Brown here. I'm gonna stop you. (laughs) Okay. Listening to her podcast and stop you. I want you to say that again. What you just said. I think. I think a lot of what we're doing right now is we're looking at people who have information that we know is wrong, and we're saying your map is wrong. Stop drawing maps and stop trying to make sense of information. Mm -hmm. Or like here, take my map. But then they look at our map and they go like, but all those trees are in the wrong place. And those trees really matter to me. Right. And so if we could collectively get behind this idea that truth is by its very nature or that knowledge is by its very nature, really, really messy. And that the only way that we get closer to the good stuff is to add more true, justified, true details to the map. Mm -hmm. Then we could say like, 
hey, you know, I remember that tree being over here. Instead of your entire map must be thrown out. Mm-hmm. I was reading something today, actually, that was like somebody posted on social media that was like, you know, when you see people who are posting things that are just false, you will get a better response if you say, oh, you know, I was reading a source that said this other thing. Would you share your source with me and I'll share mine with you and, you know, maybe we'll see some, you know, some differences or whatever, right? Because that's basically right. saying, I saw a map that showed it differently. So why don't we, like, work together to try to figure it out? And so, we'll, we'll compare maps. The, the right. thing I think you're, you're talking about right here that we're so fundamentally lacking right now is, it's a basic. It's not a. It's not a respect for misinformation. It's not a respect for bad behavior. It's a. It's a lack of respect for. The the person we're talking to or interacting with, their experiences and their understanding of the world. Yeah. Something from my other life. I you know I work for a market research company. And um, we do some jury research, and I think you'll find this interesting, which is why I'm bringing it up and relevant. So you're talking about working together toward capital T true. Uh, when we do mock trials, when we run, you know, kind of, they're not pretend cases, they're real cases, but in kind of pretend scenarios. When we run them with jurors, we often have really diverse populations that we're working with. Diverse in terms of age, in terms of racial and ethnic background, diverse in terms of political leaning and education and marital status. We, it, but this mix of people, if you give them a common goal, they bring the richness of their experience to it, but they don't, I've never once seen them fight over any of these differences that I just mentioned. Yeah. Um, because you've, you've given them a goal and it's a goal they take really seriously, really seriously. The, that the where their tree their individual trees are on their map suddenly doesn't matter to them. I mean, yeah. of course it matters, but it doesn't matter toward getting to the goal. And they start talking about where their trees are, and and is that is this how we get there? I'm not sure that that's how we get there. Where how would how do you get there? And then somehow, usually they do. And it's a really beautiful thing because we were trying to partially study if juries seem to be as polarized as everybody else. And the answer is a flat no. They're not. Hmm. And I think it has to do with groups of people working together toward a common goal. I remember, and it might have been the same conversation, talking with you, and this is why I'm talking to you for my my first podcast, about art and how so many of the capital T truths, truth, it, it seems like we, we don't have ways to talk about them directly. Yeah. Not good ways. Not good ways to talk. I mean, the philosophers have tried and blessed them. Um, but yeah. that's, a, that's a rarefied atmosphere they're breathing. For the rest of us on Earth, we have, it's really very difficult to talk about this, especially with people who don't have similar experiences, like literal similar, similar experiences. But yeah, have art because humans understand music and rhythm and color and shape. 
And we make those all the time, whether it's with words or with our bodies or with paint or with buildings. And those things can somehow convey part of this true, this capital T truth, in a way that direct words can't. I have a lot to say about that. I'll try to bring myself in. But I think that um, one thing we humans think about ourselves is most of us think that reason is what drives us, that that's our most prominent way of knowing. Like, I'm a reasonable mm-hmm. person. And, again, reason is A plus B equals C. So you have to have an A and you have to have a B. And those A and B, A's and B's don't come from reason alone because reason by definition is A plus B equals C. Mm-hmm. So your A and your B are things like emotion, intuition, faith, right? That your um, your sensory perception, like your literal seeing of, hearing of, smelling of things, right? Mm-hmm. With art, it's often using the tools of sense perception and emotion and sometimes language um, to evoke a feeling, which is, you know, there, there's been a lot of research that says that one of the best ways to develop empathy is to read novels that that and that's a that's a justification for continuing to read fiction in school because students become more empathetic when they read a novel and less empathetic when they look at statistics because their uh, statistics are isolated from the human experience so um i think a couple of examples of this that have really been important to me are two novels um Slaughterhouse-Five by Kurt Vonnegut and Beloved by Toni Morrison, which are novels that a lot of people have read. And I'm lucky enough to teach at the high school that Kurt Vonnegut graduated from. So his legacy is really important to to me as a teacher at that school. But in Slaughterhouse-Five, Kurt Vonnegut is addressing the atrocity of World War II and the firebombing of Dresden with a fractured narrative that involves Space aliens mm-hmm. and blends blends the genres of sci-fi and memoir. And he, the effect of that is that this world. I hope we can curse on this podcast. This world is so fucked up that you can't even look at it straight. Like he doesn't right. describe the bombing because he can't describe the bombing because it's too horrible to look at. Instead, but he has to use aliens in order to describe it. And he's, he's the disjointed narrative and the feeling that that disjointedness creates in us, even as we're reading it, is he's creating in us the feeling he wants to convey about the, this bombing. Right. And then he has, of course, that line, so it goes, for everything that dies is followed by so it goes. Right. Which in itself is this, like, disconnected, this piece where you can't, you can't even say the words that matter when somebody dies. They're too hard to say. So you just say, so it goes. You can, like, get to the next thing. And then um, for a couple of years, I had my students for one of their papers compare Slaughterhouse-Five to Beloved by Toni Morrison. Beloved by Toni wow. Morrison is, um, of course, a book about it's a fictional narrative that breaks the rules of genres such as ghost stories, historical fiction, um, and it uses um, symbolic representations of slavery to tell the story of 
a ghost of a baby who grows up and returns to this family that has been fractured by um, slavery. And like, I wish I could sum it up more concisely, but I feel like that summary didn't even do it justice. But it uses a fractured narrative that um, breaks the rules of genres to make this important claim, I think, that slavery was so horrible that you can't possibly talk about it in a matter of fact way or look at it straight on and really understand how much it continues to continue to continues to affect the world around us. Yeah. Um, and the ghost is of course a metaphor for slavery, right? And in, in one reading of it, I don't think there's one answer to literature, but um so I think, you know, those are two examples of novels that artistically show us exactly what you're talking about, that sometimes we need art to feel the things and face the things that otherwise we can't really even begin to understand. That was beautiful. And again, hey. this is why I'm talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me about your picture. I went back to my place of employment for the first time since the COVID-19 stuff went down. Um, we were given, you know, the day we were allowed into our building, what we were supposed to do and how we were supposed to prepare it for cleaning. Um, and I went to the building not feeling very emotional, just thinking I'm going to the building to do what I do, um, clean up the things, get my stuff. And when I got there, you know, I thought I felt like I was going to an empty building because I had been given a time that would not make me run into anyone, right? That was the whole point of staggering the time. Mm -hmm. um, but the building was not empty. The building was full in a way with our custodial and maintenance and ground staff. And full, you know, not literally, it's a big building and there are, I don't know, maybe 10 people um, who have those jobs, but they're the people who, have, who are the custodians of the building. They are, they have custody of the building. And so for the first time, when I walked in and I saw them and encountered them as I walked through the building to get to my office and leave, I thought of that word custodian and how it really is linked to the word custody and how the custodians are the people who have custody of the building. And, you know, that doesn't mean that it's my building and they're taking care of it, which is I think a way that a lot of people think about custodians. Mm -hmm. You know, if you say the custodial parent, the child belongs to both parents, but the custodial parent is the person who the child really like legally belongs to right and so and so the custodians have the power of our building they're taking care of our building the building is not empty it's full and they're doing the job they've always done with some added responsibilities and i'm not the kind of person who would ever think that i was someone who like dismissed the work of custodians in fact my stepdad no, i know i know you yeah, yeah. <laughs> who tilled up the ring in the garden, he was a school maintenance worker and at times a school custodian for most of his working life, for all of his working life, really. So I, you know, have memories of like 
a school boiler going down in the middle of the night and in a snowstorm and like my mom wasn't home and my stepdad took me in my pajamas and my winter coat with him to the school and fixed the boiler, you know? So mm-hmm. I'm well aware of the importance of these jobs, but I just like had never thought about that word before. And so as I was leaving the building, the custodians had all stepped out for a break. And then um, Ron, who is our grounds person, he uh, came around the corner on his tractor. He was mowing the lawn and he stopped and um, I put my stuff in my car and I could see all of them. And I just took my camera out and I said, you guys, and they were all wearing their masks. And I just said, Hey, you guys wave. And they just waved and I snapped the photo of them outside the school. Um, so yeah, that was my little moment of beauty. And then I also sent you a photo of. That's also true. As, there's a truth in there too. True. Yeah. Which I is, learned something. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, about the nobil- the nobility and I, I I say that that sounds kind of snobby, like ooh, but I I kind of mean it. There's a nobility in being the custodian of something, of of being responsible for it and in service to it. And and maybe I'm not capturing this right, but this is what I'm thinking of as you're talking about it. It's like stewardship almost. Yeah, but I, I think it's like I when I think about it, I think that custodian is really the word. I just never thought about it before because it's I don't know. I feel like like we've just all pretended it was ours when really it's theirs. Hmm. But not really stewards of it. Like they have custody of it. They are responsible for it. So the other photo I sent you was one of me. After about an hour of tending my four by four garden four foot by four foot garden in the heat the other day and I just look a mess (laughs) and when I went to pull a photo for you and saw the photo of the um, custodian and maintenance and grounds crew um, I saw this picture of me from the day before just looking a mess after one hour of work and then I love the contrast of me and then them you know, they who maintain a four-story, most beautiful high school in Indiana, um, 1920s building with, like, you know, gorgeous things and the the legacy of Kurt Vonnegut in it, looking. <laughs> and they're doing it with grace and ease and, yeah. Yeah, and Chris in the heat standing outside um, in their mask. And then there's me. Just about <laughs> for one hour on a four by four garden. So, so there we Whatever. go. It's true, <laughs> right? It's the truth. I'm a. I'm yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I think that's beautiful too. The more I have to say, the more I focused on beauty and truth, the more the more beautiful things have become for me. I know that sounds that's weird. That- it doesn't sound that weird, but I, capital T. That's a capital T truth you just said. I think so. Uh, I think uh, as I've been experiencing this over the last few months, um, I've I don't know if it's a realization yet or just a, a notion, a theory I'm testing, which is that there are some moments of beauty that that capture us and captivate us and stop us in our tracks. 
but we can also draw beauty out of something by the attention we give it. Um, that there are some things that don't seem beautiful at first, but if we apply a bit of attention and and a little let's say discernment, maybe just pay attention to the details of them and the functions of them and the, the, the whys and the what's of them, they suddenly become beautiful or even gradually become beautiful. Well, it's, I would like to take this time to thank you for letting me be your first guinea pig guest on your podcast. And I'm so oh happy Lord, to be doing so it funny. from my air-conditioned home. Well, and of course, I have to thank you for being, when I said, want to be my guinea pig? You're like, yes. I was like, great. Um, yeah, because I don't know what I'm doing yet. And these are huge questions that I can just barely talk about to begin with, um, which is probably why I'm asking questions and not just interviewing myself. Like I was trying to figure out who to, who to start with and who I wanted to to really talk to these things about, talk to about these things. I was like, it's Mel. We were just chatting like, oh, it's Mel. Right away, I knew, just knew. Oh. So thank you. 